Good morning. You are listening to the uh, to Panhandle Community Radio. This is 88.5 KRFY. My name is Jack Peterson, and I'm here with Heather Upton and Hannah Combs for the Community Character Hour. Hannah Combs is the Executive Director of the Bonner County Historical Society and Museum. Heather Upton is the Art and Historic Preservation Officer for the City of Sandpoint. And this is our premier episode, the grand... Uh, debut of the Community Character Hour, and welcome to it. Uh, good morning, Heather. Good morning. <laughs> How are you doing? Oh, so good. I've been waiting for a long time for this, so I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, and uh, good morning, Hannah. Good morning. Happy How are you? to be here. Good. Yeah. Um, it has, you've both been on the radio pretty frequently. You've been your frequent guests on this station in one form or another, but it's been a while since you were here together. Yes. I'm glad we're starting this. Yeah. Together again. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, we have our we have our outline. Should we stick to it? Should we jump right into this uh, to this program? Let's do it. Okay. Well, should we begin with a fun fact from the historical calendar that uh... Absolutely. Okay. So uh, this was taken from the February 27th, 1892 issue of the Ponderay Review newspaper. There were not a lot of things going on in town yet that were newsworthy, but there were many ads for new businesses. And this is one of those. Sandpoint is favored with a new dentist, Mr. J.H. Durfee has a fine kit of tools and offers a $50 reward for any tooth that he cannot extract if there is anything left to work on. That is wonderful. Okay. I love it. I wish my dentist had a $50 reward for... Uh, uh, well, anyway. The but, leftover part scares me. I know. Yeah, if there's anything left to work on. But that does not sound like an advertisement at all. That sounds like... I don't know. It uh, it sounds like uh, not the dentist I'd want to go to. Maybe. Yeah, probably De- not. Yeah, definitely indicative of what was happening mm-hmm. back in the day, and and that it's stories like that that are so enticing and fun, and to me link back to what I hear so often at the city, which from the community, which is community character. I love that word, and I think it embodies so much, and. Um, when we were, Hannah and I were introduced with the opportunity from KRFY to be able to talk about uh, history, which always gets us buzzing, <laughs> and to be able to specifically talk about our community's character through historical stories, it we just had to jump on the opportunity. And um, so, th- so that is the impetus of this opportunity in this radio show. And we want to bring fun history that celebrates people that, like, that was their grandparent that was at the dentist or they were at the dentist, you know, but also um, educating people about our community that just moved here and kind of just celebrating what is so amazingly Sandpoint. Mm -hmm. And character, I think, can be a hard word to understand. It's just one of those words that seems to uh, suggest everything about a place. So what we're hoping to do in the show is kind of break down different ideas, different places, people, um, features that help create that sense of community that is often so hard to describe, but we all kind of feel what it is. 
Exactly. And then what's going on right now, right? And a lot of people, um, there's so much going on at the city. And so we thought it'd be fun to highlight things that are going on at the city and the museum and different things around town, but then also connect it to history from a greater scale. So kind of a fun education moment. And one of the things um, that we thought about, there were so many topics to think about because everything is fun when it comes to history. But we are right now in the middle of our comprehensive planning effort, which we'll talk about more. But we thought that that would be a great topic to start our first show with. Yeah. What is city planning um, and why is it important? Perfect. Um, you know, it's it's something that I, as a, like a lay person, I don't think I ever thought about city planning really until recently, until like this summer when uh, the city of Sandpoint was kind of putting out their ideas for the waterfront redevelopment mm-hmm. plan. Um, and those were, yeah, uh, shown to the public down at the farmer's market and things like that and kind of yeah put put me in mind to oh wow this is a you know this is a direction that you know we kind of have to we have to choose what direction we're going to go here um i don't know but it's it's not something i ever think about uh and have have cities always been planned has has this city always been planned or do these things just kind of occur uh and and ferment like uh you know and turn into cities all by themselves that's a great question should we go like to the very beginning of city planning from a historical standpoint way back in time and then jump into sandpoint let's itself? do it okay <laughs> i'm gonna get really nerdy here um talking about ancient city planning so when agriculture became a cornerstone of human civilization, communities could begin to settle in one place instead of roaming to collect resources. These ancient communities formed the earliest examples of social contracts or rules by which civilization could operate. Trade developed, as did government and justice systems, and so did a need for city planning. City planning addressed issues like who had priority to access of water, how do we dispose of waste, and so on. The largest ancient city within what is now the United States was called Cahokia on the banks of the Mississippi River in modern-day Illinois. No written records about the city remain, but its carefully constructed earthen mounds, central plazas, and road-like paths laid out on the axis of the cardinal directions suggest that the city was designed as a ceremonial pilgrimage site in addition to a year-round home for up to 40,000 Native Americans at its peak. So a pretty large city um, on the scale of what we're more familiar with with the Aztecs and Mayan Mm -hmm. cultures. Um, Now, over in the Old World... Uh, surrounding walls were a major feature of most city planning from ancient times. If some communities prepared well for drought and others didn't, wars to acquire resources often followed a difficult growing season. Typically, surplus grain from the surrounding farmland would be stored inside a city's walls to protect it. And in the event of a battle or even a siege, the population could take shelter within the city walls and wait out the battle. The more impregnable the walls, the more likely a community was to survive. So a well-planned city with strong high walls could often outlast an attack. 
in the stories about two ancient cities with legendary walls, uh, Troy and Jericho, the armies required divine intervention to penetrate the city's fortifications. So God himself collapsing the wall at the Battle of Jericho and Athena inspiring Odysseus to build the Trojan horse. I think stories like that really show us just how big of a deal walls were in the ancient world. Um, the city of Constantinople, sorry, I'm just like oh, nerding out. I love this so I, much. Yeah, and the word Constantinople gets me really excited. Yeah. I love the Byzantium period. So uh, Constantinople, which is now Istanbul, was surrounded by perhaps the most impressive walls in history. And they were placed under siege 35 times by many different attackers over a period of almost a thousand years and didn't fall. Until finally, in 1453, Sultan Mehmed of the Ottoman Empire attacked the city using many different military strategies, including a relatively new one grown to immense proportions. Gunpowder cannons that could lob half-ton cannonballs almost a mile, which destroyed big chunks of the wall and helped, among other tactics, getting them into the city. As technology advanced, particularly with gunpowder, city-states and nations turned more often to diplomacy and trade negotiations to prevent their cities from being leveled or raised. So moving forward a few hundred years, by the 19th century, most city-states and empires were developing into nations. Because defense was managed then at a national scale, fewer individual cities felt they had to fortify themselves against their neighbors. City planning could transition away from prioritizing defense capabilities to focusing on quality of life for their citizens. So this included things like ease of transportation, again, waste disposal, and things like fire safety, which was a major consideration in big cities with multi-story buildings housing sometimes thousands of factory workers in the 1800s. The uh, 1893 World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago brought the City Beautiful movement to the forefront of the American consciousness. This theory promoted harmonious architectural designs and city layouts, access to green spaces, and promised to solve all of the problems that plagued America's overcrowded, dirty cities. It may have been inspired by the many experimental utopian communities scattered across the Great Lakes states in the 1800s, which rarely lasted more than a few decades. The City Beautiful movement was not considered realistic by some. Um, urban planning activist Jane Jacobs called it an architectural design cult. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, 1893, so about the time... Interesting. Yeah, about the time that Dr. Durfee was setting up his shop over here, uh, the World's Columbian Exposition was introducing the city beautiful to Chicago and the eastern states. Exactly, and mm -hmm. so in the eastern states where things were developed earlier, um, you had already seen these cities growing, trying things out, often failing, and then trying to figure out better solutions. And so at that point in time, big like theories were coming about of, you know, oh, we can do this and it'll be perfect and we'll never have problems again. Um, <laughs> I, I still sometimes feel like we feel that way. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. And then over here, like you said, at the same 
time in history, we were just getting started. We were just figuring it out for the yeah. first time. That word like rough yeah. and tumble immediately. And I, I back in like the museum when I was with the museum, I we used that so often, but in our research, like in everybody's introduction of their writings about their first experience in Sandpoint, that's really the the two words that they they used. Mm-hmm. And it was amazing, like what they encountered when they first came here. And I do want to say that the um, so for a long, long time, there were Native American villages in the area that were based along the waterways here. Mm-hmm. So um, typically they would be seasonal camps, but there was a camp at City Beach as well as many sites along the Ponderay River system and the mm-hmm. Clark Fork River systems. Um, but settlers, only a very small handful of settlers came into this area before the railroads were here. Yeah, I th- wasn't it like in 1883, one of the first businesses was the Weeks family that came and did the first general store? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And there were ads for the Weeks general store in I the same that. newspaper I was looking at about the dentist. That's amazing. So they were here for a while. And um, and really, it was the railroad that kind of started it all, right? And thinking about, well, and I, I don't know if everybody knows that the town that we're like sitting in right now, like on First Street in this amazing historic building at KRFY, this wasn't the original town site. That's correct. Yeah, this was a uh, forest back in those days. Um, very few people came to Sandpoint. There were people traveling through the area to access the gold rushes up in British Columbia. But at that time, before the railroad, you would have to travel through by ferry and then cross over land or take a steamboat up from Bayview up to the Hope area and again, then pack horses up north. Um, But when the trains came in in 1882, everything changed. That really opened up the land to development and um, as made sense Everywhere back then, uh, the original town grew up right around the railroad tracks because that was um, how you had to get in and out of town. And I'll never forget those early photos of that early town site. And it literally are like railroad tracks like coming through and there's just immediately on both sides on a lower grade, Mm -hmm. all of these different businesses. And um, I'll never forget um, LMA, her quote, the LMA Farman, which we'll get into who that is, but she, her quote was, over in this little town, there were perhaps 100 people, 23 saloons, several houses of ill fame, two stores, two hotels, and one restaurant. Strange, strangers were seen to enter saloons and never come out. Although the town bore anything but a savory reputation. So that was it. And so LMA Farman, and Hannah, I'll let you um, elaborate on this, but um, LD and LMA came over because she was a telegrapher for the railroad. Is that correct? Yeah, they both were. And they worked um, opposite shifts. So LMA worked the night shift. Her husband, LD, worked the day shift. And... um, They actually worked on the Great Northern Railroad. So the Northern Pacific was uh, going through uh, where the railroad goes today by the depot in Sandpoint, so on the east side of Sand Creek. 
And then uh, she and her husband worked at the Great Northern Depot, which was over on the west side of town. So there's still a railroad that goes through over there. It's going to be um, back by, so if you drive under Pine Street, you cross underneath it. So there was a depot over on that side of town. And the two of them homesteaded kind of right where we're sitting right now. Um, I think their house was really close to where the Cedar Street Bridge is today. And uh, she had some big adventures because she had to walk, you know, a mile or more, Mm -hmm. maybe a little bit more than a mile through the woods to get to work every night. (laughs) So incredible. And to think, um, and when we talk about homesteading claims, I think we we should clarify like what that is in mm-hmm. terms of the Homesteading Act. Yeah. So as a part of the Homestead Act, you could apply to um, cultivate a 160-acre parcel of land. Um, you would apply for it through the the land office down in, um, I think it was in Coeur d'Alene back then, or maybe Rathdrum, uh, which was the county seat at the time. And that was two days by horse and buggy, which was the main mode of transportation, which is hard to believe. Wow. Yeah, that was a big trip back in the day. So you'd, <laughs> go, down, <laughs> you'd go down there, you'd get an application. Um, they would say, sure, here's here's your parcel. You'd come back up and then you would have a five-year period of time in which you would have to develop that land in some way. So typically by building a home, typically by cutting enough timber to grow some sort of crop or raise livestock. And then you could prove um, that you had settled it. If at the end of those five years you had that proof that you had improved the land, then you would get a deed to the land free and clear. So It was so funny. My nine-year-old, I was mentioning, well, now he's 10. I keep thinking he's just nine. <laughs> I never you know, keep growing. And I was explaining the Homestead Act to him. And he's like, wow, wouldn't it be cool if we could still do that? <laughs> I was like, yeah. wouldn't it be amazing? It's it, incredible to think about that. And it, and in, a, in the readings, too, in terms of um, in the research that I was doing, um, it's pretty incredible to think about like who had what property and then kind of the, that, that homesteading part and the fortitude of those settlers really. And, and then the donation of the land too, which we'll get into is pretty powerful in terms of the planning and also, you know, kind of the development of what we are today. Yeah. And I think when you think about homesteads, typically you imagine them as really rural places that are used for agriculture or um, become a cattle ranch or something like that. And I think, you know, we see this today in the Selly Valley where there are these big old homesteads that are just now getting little little parcels kind of divided and given to family or things like that. But something really different happened here with the with the farmen's homestead and i we were talking about like why do you think that happened like how did that happen what what was the vibe and i was doing a little research and and again like so many quotes from individuals talk about like the lawlessness and the moral turpitude was the impetus for the new settlement um, coming, you know, going across the railroad tracks, essentially over to this side that we're, that we know of today. And um, there were a lot of proper quote unquote ladies that banded together 
to promote improvements and had a vision of like a schoolhouse and a Sunday school meeting and an organized church, which was erected in 1896. And I'll um, have you talk about that, Hannah. But then there was also all this immigration that happened too. There was a depression in 1893 to about 1894. So a lot of people moved from the East to the West trying to seek a better life. Um, so it, it's fascinating to, to think about all these new people coming in. And from 1890 to 1900s, the town actually doubled to 400 people, which I thought was really fascinating. Yeah, it's really easy to think about the past and think like, oh, over this period of time, everything must have been the same because we don't know a lot about it. But this area at that time was changing tremendously year from year. So from, if you think before 1882, when the trains came through, I think there were under 12 people living here permanently. And then the trains came in, the population grew to 100. Um, and that's when we had all of the saloons and it, houses of ill fame. <laughs> and and if you think about that time, it was going to all be railroad workers other men who were here maybe uh, when they were just starting to cut timber in the area. So these were all, for the most part, going to be single men who were here to work. Uh, there were not a lot of families or women. Right. A lot a lot of men thinking about that. Delia Holton, she arrived in Sandpoint in 1886, and um, the museum has some of her stories. But there were only six ladies in town, mm-hmm. and they're referred to as white ladies, Um and so she started a rooming house um, because there were, but can you imagine being just one of six females with all these men? And they worked hard, but they played hard. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's for another episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll get into that later. Um, but yeah, and, and if you imagine a lot of these women at that time obviously did not grow up here. They had moved here from somewhere else. They had probably moved here from somewhere more developed where they were accustomed to uh, more of life's little luxuries. I think they had witnessed the City Beautiful plan as well. <laughs> yes, that kind of thing was big news at the time. And and we did have a newspaper here starting in 1892. So everyone, you know, 10 years into Sandpoint's uh kind of settlement here, people were getting news from around the world and seeing what life was like and probably thinking to themselves, wow, why can't we have nice things like that here? Why are these guys so rough and rowdy and not refined at all? Um, And so the women, I think, were a major force behind the growth of the town into what we know it today. Do you think they were like nagging at their husbands, like fill the chart like me with like, I need new shop doors. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> I just try to like go back and think about what those conversations were like. And I've had enough with these men. <laughs> we, we need a beautiful place that our children can, you know, mm-hmm. celebrate and learn and, yeah, it would have been funny to think. And, and I think, you know, when it was mostly just older women moving here with their husbands for work, um, perhaps they were willing to put up with a little bit more. Um, but once people started having children in this area mm-hmm. and those children were growing up without a school and without 
churches to go to, that seems to be the time when the uh, refined ladies of town really put their foot down and said, something's got to give. We need these children to grow up with the things that we grew up with back east. But wasn't the Sunday school the first Sunday school in the white spawn saloon? Yes, it was it was in one of the saloons. Yeah, and that's a bit of an interesting story. Is that the one where they came in with the hatchets? Oh, I think that was a different one. So that was during the the WTCU movement. So okay. the women's temperance um movement. Um so they felt like I love these women. <laughs> They're incredible. If only we could have a dinner party with them. They thought men were so thirsty. That's why they drank. <laughs> so during this temperance movement, um, they did things such like in hope where they would like install a water fountain and then that's how they thought that they could get them to stop drinking or um, and then there was also I'm trying to remember uh, which church uh LME Farman was a part of. But I believe the Methodist. The Methodist, church. that's right. Yeah. And there was kind of a gang of them, you know, and let's call it a civic club, right? Mm-hmm. And so we had like Minnie LaFond and Amanda Nesbitt. And um, it's it was so fascinating. I learned a lot about these fun stories when we put together the Women Who Shape Bonnard County exhibit back in the day. And um, they were going around to the bar, the saloon keepers in raising money for the Methodist church. And yes. the saloon keepers weren't wanting to support that effort at the time. So I believe it was LMA Farman and Amanda Nesbitt that took axes and started like axing the all of like the bars and the tables and the saloon. So, so I think they like ended up being a force to be reckoned with as well, like <laughs> dealing with these rough and tumble men. Yeah, they they were serious about what they wanted, and uh, <laughs> they I don't know how to get it. <laughs> I don't know if they did the same, used the same tactics to fundraise for schools, but they they got them built. Yeah, <laughs> well, I I see these women like with axes in their hand, like you will build this. Yeah, well, one imagines they knew how to swing an axe growing up <laughs> yeah. or coming out uh, coming out here. Um, you're listening to the Community Character Hour on. 88.5 KRFY, this is Panhandle Community Radio with Hannah Combs, the Executive Director of the Bonner County Historical Society and Museum, and Heather Upton, the Arts and Historic Preservation Officer of the City of Sandpoint. Um, and I, we were just talking about how, kind of how the community uh, jumped the creek, how we came over from the or the, the west side of town to uh, here on or uh, the east side of the east creek, sorry, west. to to the west side where we sit now and where most of our listeners probably are. Um, when it 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 started as the Farman um, homestead, and what was the first thing like after that? How did it, well? And they donated the first plot of land to the community, which was for the Methodist Church, I believe. Yeah. Okay. Um yeah. And so so yeah, we can 1896. Yeah, so this all ties into kind of the first attempts at city planning. Yes. Yeah. So trying to get people, how do they get people from the east to the west? Yeah. And how do they make it attractive and um in research it was told there was more quote unquote elbow room for yeah. the properties. How were people like, because the, the houses are no longer there mm-hmm. or the dwellings, whatever it was. How, how were people living on the 
other side of the tracks where they're homes you know conventional stick you know timber yeah. houses and stuff yeah, yeah. mostly wooden structures mm-hmm. um and there were fires that came through every mm-hmm. now and then burned things down they would rebuild um i think the the most prominent buildings on the east side of the creek would have been some of the hotels mm-hmm. and boarding houses again thinking that a lot of the people back in those early days were single men who were here to work and probably were coming and going a lot so they might stay at a boarding house for eight months and then move on to another job. Um, So those were the most prominent buildings and the ones that were probably the best built, but Mm -hmm. they still did have fires in some of those buildings as well. Um, There were some houses. There were also a lot of kind of little shacks and lean-tos, little shanty areas that popped up, fell down. And then a lot of people lived outside of town too. So Mm -hmm. kind of... but. There was also issues with being over there with, like, flooding. Mm-hmm. There was a great flood that happened that kind of changed. Uh, the railroad had to think about how they need to redo the grade. So that was kind of a complication was the grade of that railroad and then the flood plain there. Yeah. I mean, at that time, waterfront property was not desirable because mm-hmm. of seasonal floods. So if we did not have the dams here um, on either side of the lake, uh, every spring there would be some sort of flooding typically when we get the runoff from the snow melt. And so they they faced that every year, but occasionally like in 1894, mm-hmm. um, there would be a huge flood that would destroy a lot of buildings, um, sometimes infrastructure like city docks or things like that. And that's part of the impetus of why we have the um, the dams today, because there was the big 1894 flood, and then there was also a huge flood in 1948. And that was when the town was much more established. And so the uh, the damage from that flood wreaked a lot of havoc on on town and they they really started pushing for the the damming projects at that time. So I think between like those aspects and then the come over to so at the so back to the west side now we have the farm and family starting to plat out town and sell parcels and talk about you know how it's attractive but then there was like this moral aspect and then all of a sudden there was um, throughout this was happening in Alaska and Portland and all over there. There was districts that started to evolve. And um, so the east side became um, the restricted district. And then there was a lot of talk. Um, and this was kind of more towards the 1900s. And where I'm trying to remember what year. I think it was, so in 1907, they changed governmental form from a village to more of a town. So it had a mayor council structure. And um, in 1908, there were lines drawn about prostitution and they started um, finding, you know, the women and um, uh, really trying to crack down on it. So that's kind of where almost that railroad division, that, that clear line of the East and the West came where, where you wouldn't want to live over there unless you were kind of, uh, of more of a seedy cloth, let's the, say. The other side of the tracks. The other side of yeah. the, yeah, where that exactly. comes from. Yeah. Yes. 
Yeah, and it, it was kind of an interesting period of development um, because the ta- the village of Sandpoint officially incorporated in 1901, I believe. And so for those first six years, um, the uh, sort of the pseudo city council was really just the big businessmen in town <laughs> who uh, – <laughs> It was just an interesting time because at this point in time, you know, the the town is still being platted out. They're still planning the streets. Um, You also have all of these businessmen in charge, essentially, who may or may not be looking out for their own business interests as they make decisions for the town. You can read between the lines in the papers. (laughs) And so, um, yeah, once they got a little bit more official structure in place with the city council and the mayor, then it, it, it became a little bit more like how we know a town operates today. Um, but yeah, the early years were, uh, it was a lot of work. To get even, even things like streets. Yeah. Planned. Well, or sidewalks. They had boardwalks. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. So um, back in the day, no one had asphalt or concrete paving. So the streets were um, dirt or in many seasons mud, mm-hmm. um, which created all kinds of issues for wagons and even cars. We still had uh, dirt streets when, when automobiles started coming into use. Um, and because it was so muddy, and I'm assuming, again, because the women were secretly in charge of everything and were tired <laughs> of getting their boots and hem lines <laughs> muddy, uh, the sidewalks were boardwalks. So they were made of wood, so you could be a little bit above the mud as you walked from shop to shop. And I remember the, this one article that was so fabulous um, it was, again, like Ella May Farman and her cronies, and they were so tired of their dresses getting so much mud on them. They wanted sand to be in the streets just so it would be easier to traverse and get around. And um, they went ahead and lifted up their dresses and sat right in the middle of the street until the town fathers did what they asked. So Because they were so embarrassed <laughs> by their behavior. <laughs> So they they just figured out to get how to get what they wanted. Yeah. <laughs> um, so thinking of that, um, this is kind of when we start to talk about how we know our town today. Like thinking about what's curious, mm-hmm. we have like Main Street, right? That's on the diagonal. We do. There are no. Are, correct me if I'm wrong, but there's no streets that run parallel to Main. I think that's right? correct. Yeah, that that's the only one that is. Yeah. Laid out like that. Okay. Well, explain. <laughs> yeah. Somebody. So this, this goes back to <laughs> Miss yeah. LMA, yeah. of mm-hmm. course, because I think she was the town mother of them all. <laughs> uh, sorry. Let me back up real quick. So this is LMA Farman, mm-hmm. who originally owned the where the homestead where we sit today. That's correct. I'm guessing they had a house on the property somewhere. Yep. So it would have been kind of uh, like at the intersection of First Avenue and Cedar Street in Sandpoint. Mm -hmm. So right out in front of where the Cedar Street Bridge is today. Okay. You mentioned that. And then the first building after that, after their homestead was probably the Methodist Church. That was the first one that they really mm-hmm. did the work mm-hmm. to fundraise for. Yeah. I'm guessing, I th- and they donated the land. Yeah, I think there might have been a few other 
little buildings there that were, popped up between. There, yeah. it, absolutely. And in like 1900s, it's hard to like not go into different, fall into different rabbit holes constantly. Yeah. But um, in 1900 to 1907, there was a boom with the mill. And so Sandpoint Mercantile became Sandpoint Lumber, which therefore became Humbered Lumber Company, which mm-hmm. was huge. And and I'd love if you'd elaborate on that. But they had like mill houses. They had a mercantile store. They had a walking bridge to get over to the mill. So that also created a lot of kind of support mm-hmm. for more of the town. Exactly. The and as town. you're, you're yeah. looking at this period of time from 1890 to like 1915, every decade, the population is at least doubling. Wow. Or, yeah. or every like five years, the population is at the at the least doubling. And yeah. so there's so much growth. Um, and at the museum, we do have volunteers who are amazing and love to like dig into those details and say, okay, in August of 1902... <laughs> What were the buildings here? And then in 1904, what were the buildings here? But because, you know, businesses were coming and going relatively quickly, um, lots of people were moving to the area. It is kind of hard to track down exactly, Mm -hmm. you know, what was here at any given period of time. Mm -hmm. And then the fires would come in, burn down half the street, rebuild. So it was it's just I think. It, that is the defining characteristic of town at that time was change yeah. mm-hmm. and growth. Um, it was a very active place to be. Mm-hmm. And uh, and yeah. you had the, the brick, too, because of the burning of the building. So a lot of um, what we see today was born out of function, not just beauty. Yeah. And um, and then also just influences that are going happening in other areas, which I think is incredible. Um, and we had quite a bit of manufacturing here, not just with the lumber mill, but we had a lot of the dry press brick manufacturer, the LaFond brick and yeah. Mason. And mm-hmm. um, in fact, it's told that Sandpoint was a huge support to Spokane's infrastructure in terms of materials, including like the, getting the Davenport Hotel built, mm-hmm. which I think is really special. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, indeed it is. Okay, I think I sidetracked us a little bit. We were talking about the actual, like the street layout. So yeah, when did, like what when we, did we see start? today. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> when, did this, when did this come into effect, like the, the current layout of Sandpoint? So this would have been right around the turn of the century mm-hmm. as they were trying to entice people to come over. Um, so again, Ella May and her husband, <laughs> LD, were, were the ones kind of behind this. They got together a group of their friends. Um, so the, and, and they all sat together and kind of brainstormed what they wanted the town to look like. Well, and then we also have, um, the Will, um, who had the other <laughs> plot and it was interesting how he came up across that homesteading plot as well. Yeah, Ignatz Weil was a character. We could do a whole episode on <laughs> I, like, him. I see him with like a long curved mustache. Like giggling <laughs> maniacally Yeah, a and I bit. apologize to anybody that's related to him. <laughs> uh-huh. But I don't know. I think when you do a lot of research, you start imagining, like you see photos and then they just start becoming a part of your world. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and Ignatz was one of those guys who just had his hands in everything wasn't he an attorney and he had like i think he had six different jobs and then he yeah he also owned like businesses Mm -hmm. and and in fact the white house as you come in on first was 
Mm-hmm. Did he acquire that house, I think? Yes. He always seemed to be acquiring things, like, uh-huh. through he someone not a, being able to pay him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he was a property developer. He yeah, was a big entrepreneur. Yes. And so he and he, he tended to be the one who butt heads yeah. with the other uh, leading figures in town because he had a different idea of how things should be done. Yeah, including the bridge. Yeah. Do you want to talk about that? Or is that a well, whole other episode? That, that might be a whole other episode, <laughs> okay. but that will be a tickler for next time. But okay. I, and that's the thing, like, that's amazing to think about is there were a few that were doing a lot. And yeah. to think that bridge placement that we know of today was determined on what was kind of the best interest of those individuals. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, so the grid, the grid system that we are with today, pretty more or less square city blocks. Uh, this was laid out right around the turn of the century determined by what was then uh, the city council or other? Uh, those are great no. questions. Yeah. This mm-hmm. was pre-city council. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this was really just a group of friends. Yeah, getting <laughs> together and with <laughs> a cocktail napkin. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. And they came up with the... I'm trying to remember who came up with the idea of the tree streets. Someone felt that was really important. Yeah, and it's fascinating, too, because you have to think, like, before that, you had the railroad that owned a lot of the property, too. Mm -hmm. And an attractive advantage of getting over to this other side of the tracks is to, I was reading, to be out from under the thumb of the railroad owning that property. Mm. And um, so... It's it's fascinating, and a lot of this can be understood in terms of planning from the Sanborn fire maps. Is that correct, Hannah? Yeah, at the museum. Yeah, these were uh, maps that the insurance companies maintained in case of destruction by fire, so they could kind of keep track of whose assets were burned and whatnot. But they're invaluable resources for us because they do show. Um, where specific businesses were and where structures were on lots back and in the day. Materials, what type of business they were. But wasn't the, the one of the insurance companies owned by the Farman family too? Probably. It was. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it's a, a fascinating thing. But sorry, back to the naming of the streets. Well, and that's why we have like the name Ella randomly, right? Well, okay. okay. I learned more about this recently I because I always assumed that Ella Mae Farman named Ella after herself, uh-huh. which seems like something she would do. Yeah. <laughs> but actually, Ella and Ruth were named by um, a guy named, I think his first name was John Law. Uh-huh. And he, so, so. When you look at old city maps, they'll say things like Farman's Edition, Wiles Edition, Law's Edition. And these were the people kind of designing um, each neighborhood. Yeah. So they were the original landowners. Thinking of them as like developers. Subdividing them. Yeah, somebody mm-hmm. buys a plot of land and they subdivide it. Yeah, so Law was one of those early um, property owners who then subdivided his land. And he was down in the area that's now South Sandpoint. Mm-hmm. So he named uh, some of the prominent streets for his daughters. Uh, so we got Ella and it. Ruth that way. We're still trying to figure out the mystery of his third daughter, Gertrude, who did not get a street name. Maybe after it was her. the name. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Gertrude Way. <laughs> so, um, but yes, yeah, so That's it did debunk my theory that Ella had just named a street after herself. I love that. And then we have, well, we were talking about the trees. 
Mm-hmm. And then we have the Great Lakes. Yes, Superior. And the President. Mm-hmm. And it, isn't that kind of like the, the national, like... Yeah, so to me, this kind of goes back to some of the things from, like, the City Beautiful movement of, oh, we're going to be very idyllic, we're going to be very organized, and, um, you know, I think you look at some of those things like, oh, our trees, our presidents, they're Mm -hmm. these, like, iconic ideas about our nation and that's probably or maybe they came from Michigan and the Great Lakes meant so much so it's fascinating to think of that and then of course you have Church Street too and wasn't that name church because it had the original church which was now how um excuse me Joel's Mm. yes was it that far back I think it was oh okay okay I'm hoping I've got that right but um yeah so there's all these like wonderful history mysteries and I think sometimes and maybe I like to use the like I'm kind of a history nerd admittingly I get quite excited about it but so I I like think through a different lens but it's fascinating to think about like the why things are the way they are and how they would have been started and do the deep dive into that and you're just driving around and and that there was someone before us who loved the Great Lakes. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and I love how, I mean, it's frustrating, but I also love how hard it is to find out sometimes. Yes. Because there are stories that you think you know, like, oh, I know exactly why this is. And then you find just a little a little line in a journal or in the newspaper that changes your whole idea about how a street got named or uh-huh. something like that. And so there's always more to learn there are so many archives to still dig through. It's so incredible. And that's, I think, what's so thrilling about what you all do at the museum is you're constantly unearthing new archives and rediscovering things or or um, doing new plat maps to fully understand how the town was. And I think it will be an endless, amazing journey Absolutely. of understanding. Mm-hmm. And of course, we're just always coming in at a high level here. (laughs) I think we totally bypassed your original question, Jack. Where's yeah? (laughs) Why is Main Street diagonal? That's all I want to (laughs) know. So this, to me, is just like a classic example of the um, how how the people who start a project kind of get to design it the way they that's Mm -hmm. that's best for them. So. If you think again back to LMA and LD having to walk a mile through the woods to get to work over on the west side of the town at the Great Mm -hmm. Northern uh, Railroad Depot, Um, you know, especially for Ella going there to work the night shift, it would have been pretty spooky to just kind of walk through the dark woods every night by herself. Um, and so I think that was one of her big priorities when they started plotting the streets was saying, and, and I have a feeling that a path existed before that because mm-hmm. she had tread it many years, but mm-hmm. what eventually became main street was the path that she walked between her home next to where the Cedar street bridge is today yeah. and the great Northern, uh, railroad depot. And so it's the straight line uh-huh. um, between the two, which were, if you think about it, the two railroad depots really would have been the hubs of the community uh, back then. Absolutely. Yeah. And they're, they're, I was reading like the drayage would go kind of back and forth between mm-hmm. the two railroads. So that makes a lot of sense. But 
but to think about her being again a great impetus for that would yeah <laughs> yeah and and if you think i mean that road would have been used a lot possibly more than any other road in town back then because people would have been potentially transporting goods from one rail line to another. Mm -hmm. um, people would be traveling from one or the other to travel because back then there were a lot of passenger trains. Um, mm -hmm. Today we only have the Amtrak that comes through in the middle of the night. But back then you could catch a train every, probably every couple of mm -hmm. hours to go to Spokane or um, over east toward Missoula. Mm. And then I also heard that the Interurban Railroad was like the Y main is the way that it is but i think that would have come after and we can yeah. get into that later mm -hmm. um i guess maybe then the better question is why are all the other streets laid out <laughs> north south or, i mean north south and east west instead of following that that pattern of main street which was probably existing already good the... question i think it's really just that most people are already yeah. directionally challenged enough <laughs> so <laughs> trying to keep it as simple as possible yeah is probably mm -hmm. the goal yeah um okay well let's let's move along because we are the this hour goes fast um, <laughs> i love it yeah it feels like five minutes i know yeah that's what the, history does um yeah well, the, and and to think i was a little concerned we wouldn't necessarily fill the hour um okay so we've got the We've got the grid system laid out, and then town it, built buildings start to be built al along that system. Town formally becomes a town. City government incorporates, mm -hmm. um, and people are adding to town. I mean, when they as they purchase land and uh, subdivide, they're adding to the town, and they're adding along that existing north-south mm -hmm. kind of grid system as yeah. things go. Yeah. Industry comes mm -hmm. in and people come mm -hmm. to be a part of that industry. And mm -hmm. and the, the amazing thing is, and this is what I love about history, it continually repeats itself and we have so much to learn from it. Mm -hmm. But um, when we were sitting in our historic preservation team meetings with the Arts, Culture, and Historic Preservation Commission, sorry, that's a mouthful, we always... Mm -hmm. um, we go back to a lot of what happened in the 1900s to what we're encountering today. And and that's why I personally think this radio show is really exciting and fun because a lot of what we're doing and we're encountering right now is what was happening in the very beginning. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, was there, I, I wouldn't think there was any kind of formal zoning law, but what, at what point did it become clear that this is where people live and this is where people shop and work and stuff like that. Like what we consider zoning today. I think that was, you know, at the earliest mm -hmm. generally established around that 1905 mm -hmm. period where mm -hmm. most people had moved over um, from the east side of the creek over to town. Uh, what we know of as First Avenue now was still going to have the closest proximity to the railroad station. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And for commerce, that was a big deal. Being able to get goods shipped out or received was mm -hmm. really important. Um, I think back then, residents were also less eager to be in the commercial part of town. So as that developed kind of right here around First Avenue, mm -hmm. they were looking toward places like South Sandpoint and saying, oh, I can have this 
big, spacious, beautiful lot with mm-hmm. trees and I can have an orchard and I can, you know, um, just have land. Later, of course, those lots would have been subdivided. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where you see like a 1900s house next to a 1950s house because, you mm-hmm. know, those properties were kind of downsized and sold off at different times. And that's the beauty of yeah. a design infill that's so different in neighborhoods, which is fascinating to think yeah, about. Yeah, 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 it is. Um, yeah, especially like in South Sandpoint, you can kind of just take a walking tour through history where yeah that some of those really old houses and then some are yeah a little come in a little later on um was there a was there like a corresponding business district at all out near the other railroad depot when that was here was there i mean was there anything other than just the depot and residences out there a little bit um Mm -hmm. it never developed in the same way um so for instance there was a thing called a a beanery, which I need to do a little bit more reading on, but my my idea of it is that it was kind of like a cafeteria mm-hmm. for the railroad for workers. the railroad yeah. workers. Okay, oh. absolutely, yeah. you're spot on. Um, I I have read reports that that area was dangerous, that it was kind of sketchy over there, um, and I'm trying to think of what period of time mm-hmm. that would have been. So. No, I don't think it ever developed into mm-hmm. the same kind of town center that this side of town did. Um, it mm-hmm. would have still primarily been there to support the needs of the railroad workers coming through. Yeah. Um, let's talk about like city planning then. Mm-hmm. Now let's finally, finally get down to it. So when did it, um, at, at what point would you say there was like a city plan or was it always... At what point was there, uh, you know, now that Sandpoint exists, was there kind of a formal decision to grow town in a certain way determined by city government? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And you think about back to what Hannah's saying, like the prominent business owners and the really Mm -hmm. civic engaged people. And I wouldn't say that that's different from today when you have a mayor and a city council and you Mm -hmm. have a very involved community that is working with council and the mayor um, to make sure that their needs are heard and the city is evaluating them and thinking about how to move the, the, how, what is the best path forward in integrating all of the needs for future planning. And that's really where the idea of a comprehensive plan is super important. And it's a long range plan for a city. And Hannah, didn't you, weren't you pretty proud that your town was the first one to have a comprehensive plan? Oh, I was wrong about that. So I'm from uh, I'm from Cincinnati. I did some research. I thought Cincinnati had the first big comprehensive plan in the U.S., but it was actually Chicago. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, so that's um, a great question, mm-hmm. Jack, about like mm-hmm. the history of the first city plan here, and that's certainly something that we could do research on, or you might know off the top of your head, Hannah. I don't know off the top of my head, and I will say comprehensive plans were kind of a radical, not radical, um, a a revolutionary idea Mm -hmm. um, when they first came around. So you start seeing early ones popping up in places like Chicago and Cincinnati in the 1910s, 1920s. And then if you think about like how much later our development here was happening, I don't know the exact date when the first um, City of Sandpoint comprehensive plan would be. 
But I think they did have several decades of kind of um, smaller scale planning and learning from that that would then inform the -hmm. later comprehensive plans. So you think about like the town getting together to try to solve individual issues. Um, One that pops to mind is when they were going to build the new post office. This was a big federal building project and it eventually Mm -hmm. became the building that is now um, McDuff's restaurant. Mm -hmm. And at the time, there was a lot of uproar from the town saying, oh my gosh, that's way on the edge of town. I can't believe you (laughs) expect us to walk that far to get our mail. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. Well, and that's a good point. When you start involving state and federal funding, everything changes. And so that's something to think about. And I bet our amazing city clerk, Melissa Ward, knows that exact day. I'm sure if Helen Newton's listening, I know she will know. Um, But (laughs) the the thing to think about, um, I'm going to super dork out on you with city government. So it's actually Title 67, Chapter 65. The official section is 67-6508 is a state legislation that oversees planning within cities. And you are required today to have a comprehensive plan. And you, it is said that you need to update it every 10 years. An update doesn't mean like a complete rehaul, but it's something to think about if you're your community has completely changed. And something to think about with our community is our comprehensive plan um, was done in 2009. Now, I moved here in 2011, and everything was in foreclosure. And so we were going through an extremely recessionary period here in Sandpoint. Fast forward to what we're dealing with today. I'm not even going to mention the growth because that's kind of a sore subject, but it's our reality. So um, we started at the city city planning efforts. And again, I am not an expert. I wish our city planner was here today, but I can give a high level explanation of where we are. So we started that plan in 2019. Well, then COVID hit, right? Which changed our whole world. Mm-hmm. So we've actually been doing that plan um, since 2019 and we're, we're still working on it. We're in the final stages right now. But but because so much has changed in that four-year period, we've had to kind of go back and go through a whole nother public engagement round, making sure that it still is the, the 20-year vision of our community. Mm-hmm. And that's what these plans are. They're a 20-year vision. They're required by state law. They set the stage for what we can build and where. They oversee developmental issues, so we're not making things on the fly. And we, we want to make sure that we're connecting to the community's broader vision. And they provide more predictability for property owners, so that's businesses and residential, commercial. And it gives direction for future codes, policies, and programs. So after you have your the guiding document of the city, then you can figure out which direction you want to go. And that goes down to our leadership on council has our own strategic plan. And then the city has all these individual master plans that have been adopted by council. And since 2009, the plans that we need to understand and and move forward with in our new um, comprehensive plan would be the parks and rec master plan, the streets, multimodal transportation concepts, the streets pavement condition assessments, the arts, culture, and historic preservation master Mm -hmm. plan, the downtown waterfront 
design competition, a design report. Now that was intended to take all of the different master plans and figure out how to cohesively weave them together and give examples on how you could move forward. So that was just a, a design idea because a lot of the plans don't necessarily have a natural cohesive vein to them. And that was the beauty of the waterfront competition was um, ideas on how to weave those plans together. And then you also have the airport um, plan, which is a component to the comprehensive plan. So it's it's pretty incredible to think about all the planning and the and even I work for the city and I still I don't have every plan memorized. And it, it's hard to think, you know, being someone that's not familiar with government, even where to begin on digesting everything. It's it's pretty amazing how a city works. And it is kind of amazing to think back over a hundred years ago to this small handful of friends saying, yes. we want this to be a real town. Let's come up with some street names and put some dirt in the roads um, to now when we do have so many people working behind the scenes to try to make you know, like all these plans and decisions easy to implement in the future. Absolutely. And it's, it's wanting to, you need to understand like what the fundamentals are, infrastructure, uh, have all that information from your technical experts, but then you have the community, which certainly can be comprised of technical experts, but that might just have a heartbeat for it, but don't know exactly how the wastewater treatment plant works, but know that they want good water. And so you're balancing out the needs and function of how to successfully operate as a city, but then you're also incorporating all of the the community's needs and desires. But I think of it as like being a mom and having, this sounds, this is so basic and I apologize, but having all these kids and wanting to make sure they're all heard and you're giving them exactly what they all want, it's an amazing balance. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to pause here for station identification. This is 88.5 KRFY Pondere, and you are listening to the Community Character Hour, which is now an hour and five minutes or so. <laughs> uh, we, yeah, we kind of have to wrap up. Let's let's real quick uh, just it, last words, last thoughts, and, and give us a little plug for the museum for people who want to learn more about all this stuff. Yeah, so we've, for the last hour and five minutes, we've been talking <laughs> yeah. about city planning, how it started in ancient times, primarily as a way to defend one's resources into modern time where, you know, we've at times been idealists, at times been practical about how to solve our various problems from waste disposal to travel and things like that um, into some of the, the measures we're taking today to plan for the future of Sandpoint. Yeah, and this is just the beginning. I mean, we're so excited to continually share all of our wonderful history with you. And um, and the one thing I do want to encourage everybody is to um, get involved and be aware of everything that's happening at the city. And we want your voice. We have um, commissions and committees open right now. Um, it's a really great way to be involved and come to council meetings. Um, sandpointidaho.gov um, uh, and we have our Facebook page and Engage Sandpoint are great ways to uh, cue in on what's happening at the city and um, and figure out those opportunities to engage. 
And if you want more details on the context of our local history to help you understand even better what is happening today, come over and visit us at the Bonner County History Museum. We would love to help you do some research on whatever topics you're interested in. Uh, We're open Tuesdays through Fridays from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. at 611 South Ella Avenue in Lakeview Park with the big yellow caboose out front. Perfect. Um, the city council is currently or is, is about to undertake again the uh, the comprehensive plan, and so you'll be if you get involved in city government right now, you can have a voice in shaping the uh, plan for the future of this town. Um, that is coming up. We expect any any time now. Any of these meetings is we're we're mm-hmm. involved in working sessions right now with council and planning and zoning. So yeah. we're just tying it up. Yeah. Uh, okay, we're gonna we're gonna call it. We didn't even get to play our uh, play our music or anything like that. We just we just have to say goodbye and let uh, the listeners hear Bird Note, which comes up next here on 88.5 KRFY, and then Autos Eclectic Mix all day long. After that, thank you for listening to the Community Character Hour uh, with Hannah Combs and Heather Upton, and from the Bonner County Historical Society and Museum and the City of Sandpoint, respectively. I'm Jack Peterson, uh, and have a wonderful day. We'll be back one month from now at the uh, at the end of next month as well. And you can also listen to this program in its entirety on our website or uh, rebroadcast two weeks from today. That's it. That's a that's it. That's a show. <laughs> oh, no.